Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our executive pastor, Pastor Brandon McPherson, with this week's sermon. I want you to go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you would, go to 2 Kings chapter 2. The, the main of our text is going to be in chapter 5, and I'll have you stand for chapter 5 here in just a few moments. But we, uh, like I had already said, we take the last Sunday of each month uh, to cover a, maybe a specific story in Scripture. And uh, I, I, in particular, get to, it seems like get to preach the majority of those, and I love it. And I love telling stories and seeing God's Word that is filled with stories. And so today, um, maybe is a story that you're familiar with, and for I hope for some of you that you've maybe never heard this story before, and you can hear this and see how Jesus is just uh, covered throughout the entire book of Second Kings, just as he is throughout all of Scripture. And so before we uh, look there, and again, Second Kings chapter 2, we are going to, uh, I want to give you some, some context as to what's going on. This is uh, around 850 B.C. This is uh, about 150 to 200 years after David and, and Solomon. And so we are, uh, they are now in what is called the divided kingdom era. And so there is uh, a lot of turmoil that is taking place and a lot of division. And so God raises up, as he does throughout uh, much of Scripture, he raises up someone to lead. And this story, and in Second Kings in particular, we see a man by the name of Elijah. And Elijah has a really unique uh, ending to his life. In fact, it's only shared with one other man in Scripture, and that is Enoch, who is found in Genesis chapter 5. But these two men, Enoch and Elijah, they have, like I said, a unique exit from this world because Elijah, and we're about to read, he ascends up into heaven. Uh, and in fact, right in front of uh, the man who he has been mentoring, right in front of his eyes. And so I wish that, uh, just for the sake of speaking, I wish that Elijah's, uh, the, the man that he is mentoring, I wish his name were, were anything, like Bob or, or anything other than Elisha. So just bear with me as I try to distinguish between these two. So there is Elijah, and then there is Elisha. Okay, so I know. But uh, so as we... Uh, but we see these two men who are serving with one another, and Elisha is the younger of the two. And we see them serving, or what I best can find is that Elisha had served Elijah for somewhere about six years. And in those six years, they see some, I mean, incredible things. You can, you can take your time to look through the story of the prophet Elijah and the many things that God allowed him to see and be witness to. And so in these six years, there's no doubt that these two men had grown together uh, in the Lord and grown together in the relationship with one another. And even as I was considering that, I, I want you to know that um, when, I, when I come up to you and uh, say, you know, I'm an executive pastor and those sorts of things that we share, I share the pastorate with Pastor Greg, as many of you know. And um, I want you to know that him and I, we, before we even began Mosaic, we were close friends. We had, we had just grown together, not through common interest, because if you get to know the two of us, we are very different. 
Um, but we grew together in the Lord, and we grew together in, through times of prayer and through seeing God work in our own lives. And even in the past three years of serving alongside him in ministry, I really could not imagine doing this without him. And, and, and I'm not saying that like Greg is my strength or that any of those things, but the Lord has placed us together in such a way that uh, we really rely on one another, and I think in a really healthy way. And but when I see the story of Elisha and Elijah, undoubt, there's no doubt in my mind that, he, that these two men were uh, even closer, having witnessed some in, not only incredible things, but their lives being spared countless times. And so when Elijah ascends up into heaven in front of Elisha's eyes, he is grieved. And so I, I set all of that up to share this text in 2 Kings chapter 2 because I want you to hear the, the tone of Elisha in his cry at the absence of this man that he has really found necessary in his life. And so uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 12, and it says this, And Elisha saw it. He saw Elisha ascend, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. And then it says, and then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into to two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And so you see Elisha grieved so much so that he, he rips his clothing. He is grieved over it. And it says in verse 14, and he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And then it says, when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. The Lord answered immediately. That he, where is the Lord, the God of Elisha? He slams the cloak down on the ground, and the sea parts, and then he walks across it like, well, that must be it. There's the God of Elisha. And so we see this moving from Eli in Elisha's mind of not just now the God of Elijah, but the God of Elisha. Does that make sense? And so as we uh, navigate through this text today, that is the question I'm asking is, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And so just in the next few chapters after this moment in chapter 2, Elisha sees and experiences some incredible things. He right away experiences the healing of a natural thing like water so that the people can be nourished and not grow sick. He receives divine intervention uh, that is there to protect him. He even sees the resurrection of, a, of a, a dead small boy whose mother was in bitter distress over his death. And so it doesn't take long for Elisha to answer his own question, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Because the Lord is now the, the God of Elisha. Are you following? And so, I, I again, to preface the, the, our main text, and you can go ahead and flip to 2 Kings chapter 5. I want to I say it like this, I, because I know we have the kids in here, and so kids, I want you to listen closely today. This sermon is just as much for you as it is for anyone else, and I hope that I don't use uh, too big of words. I don't think I have too fancy of a vocabulary. Uh, maybe that's why I get the majority of these uh, last sermons. But I want to say that I am, uh, I'm grateful to have had parents that I could observe their time with the Lord growing up. And I, I often talk to my brother, and I should talk to my parents more about it because it would be more edifying for them. 
But I talked to my brother, and we often reminisce about moments that we had forgotten, maybe. Uh, and so we'll talk about ways that we grew up and having experienced the God that my parents had served and to see the joy that my parents uh, were experiencing in him. And as I have grown up in, in life and as the Lord has saved me, uh, it is now my joy that I can not only look and, and remember and experience the joy that was within my parents and that they taught me, but now the God of my parents is my God. And so I've, I've walked with that. And so, uh, kids, if you're wondering why we pray over you or why your, your parents pray over you or why they say, come in here and sit down for, for devotion and sit down for the scripture reading, let's, let's sing some songs together or let's pray together, uh, it isn't because they want you to grow up and be perfect little angels because we know that you won't be. And it isn't because we just don't want you to embarrass us. It is because we pray for you because uh, we want you to witness his goodness. That's, I think, another reason why we want to gather together and why this Sunday is important, too, because we want you to sit in here and see adults smiling about their Savior. And so we want you to experience that. And parents, do not be discouraged. I, I speak of all of these things in my, my parents um, raising my brother and I and hearing the word and praying together. And I will say that more often than not, we were not paying close attention. Believe it or not, we were making jokes sometimes. And we would, we would laugh and we would play and we would, uh, we would be chastised, you know. And this is God's word. Don't you sit down, listen, you know. And, and so don't be discouraged that, and don't quit. Uh, with your endeavors of showing your children the goodness of the Lord. I, I remember sitting there and listening to my dad just read through the genealogies and just butchering the names, and we would just sit there and laugh about it. And now I, uh, it's, it's ironic because now I get to stand on a pulpit and butcher names. You know, it's just funny how that uh, comes back around. But I want us to listen closely to the text. I want us to listen closely to this story because the God of Elijah and Elisha is the same God that we come into this place week after week to worship. So today, if you get the idea that the God of the Bible is gracious or merciful, that he is powerful and sovereign, then you are hearing correctly. That, that is the same God that we serve today, and I want to show you that in our text this morning. If you would, stand with me to honor the reading of God's word 2 Kings chapter 5. And it says this, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God 
to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let, uh, let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And he went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said, wash and be clean. And so he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, I just ask that you would help me as I speak to your people, or that I would speak clearly, or just be with me today, Lord. Be with us today, Lord, as we hear your word. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The story is about a man named Naaman. It says in our text in verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. And so to understand, Naaman is the commander of the army of Syria. He is mighty. He is capable. It's funny, last month we, we went through the story of Gideon and, and God called him a man of valor, but he was in this hiding place and he was weak and he was afraid throughout the entire story. But Naaman is different. No one ever called Naaman weak. No one ever called him uh, uh, incapable, incapable. No one ever said, no one would ever have picked a fight with him. He was the commander. He was the leader. He was the hero. And so the king of Syria placed great value in him and in his abilities. And we even see, well, what made Naaman so successful? Look at the verse again. And commander of the army, the king of Syria, he was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And so right away we see that Israel's God is responsible for the, the victory and defeat in battles, no matter which God they may be worshiping. Whether they win or lose, God is over these things. And in fact, Daniel reminds us this in the book of Daniel chapter 2. It says in, in verse 20, Daniel answered and said, uh, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those that have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things, and he knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. 
This is Daniel speaking to a king at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and throughout all of Scripture, whether we, whether we realize it or whether we re- refuse to admit it, God is sovereign over the small things and all things. Isn't he that he is over the, the biggest things, even the kingdoms that are set up? And so Naaman really had no clue that his success in war was by the hand of a God that he, at this point, knew nothing about. This is, again, another reason why the church must remain calm when, when political storms are on the horizon, right? Amen? We, we, should, we should not turn on the news and be in any sort of panic because of a particular leader making a particular decision, but that we see that our God is above all of these things. But Naaman here is just a man, but he is mighty, in his strength. He is a warrior. Again, he is a victor. He is a hero. But what else does the scripture say he is? He's a leper. And leprosy is, is and was a cruel and fatal disease. Leprosy is a bacterial disease that, that still exists. There are uh, I'm, from what I gathered online, which, you know, everything is true there, right, uh, is about 200,000 people annually are diagnosed with leprosy. Uh, this is pretty much takes place really outside of the United States. Only about 200 cases happen annually here in the United States, and somehow 80% of those happen in Florida. I, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Um, evidently, stay away from uh, nine-striped armadillos. They carry leprosy. Um, so don't, don't pet armadillos, kids. But it is, a, uh, it is something that still exists, though we have the antibiotics to uh, treat it. And so don't, don't be in fear this morning. I doubt anyone in this room has leprosy. However, in the Old Testament, leprosy was often used as an analogy of sin. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 13, the entire chapter is set for uh, the description of how these things should be handled. We're not there yet, but you can hang on. You can hang on to that text. That it's filled with fifty-nine verses of how to deal with different cases of leprosy. God's law helped His people to to stay clean and to protect themselves and from disease. And it is practical. And you see that there are a, a group of people that don't have the the knowledge base that we have now. That if you feel sick today, you could Google search what might be wrong with you, and and you know put yourself into a panic. You could you can uh, you can go to doctors. You can get a, a second opinion, a third opinion. You can you can there's a just a plethora of medical information that we have. But these people were in a time of history where they didn't have the ability to look up and understand exactly what's going on. And, and now you can put that verse up there. I think it's one of the funniest verses in Scripture because it's included there in leprosy because it, it just is if a man's hair falls out of his head, he is bald. He is clean. <laughs> I just imagine that there were people that didn't under, because they didn't understand what was going on that they were wondering like, hey, like 60 to 70% of our men are going bald at a certain age. Does this have to do with like sin or like what's going on? Because I haven't lost my hair and some of them have. And uh, I just would imagine them hearing that and being like, oh, okay, I'm just bald. <laughs> I'm clean. So if you are bald here today, do not stress. Um, and you can continue reading in chapter two. If anyone calls you bald, you can uh, uh, bring down the she bears. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, that is an interesting. Uh, if you continue reading Second Kings chapter two, it gets very interesting uh, with that thing. 
And so we see God's law, it helps, it's practical. But leprosy, again, was an analogy for sin, and I think it's a, a fantastic analogy. Let me give you some reasons why. One is there was no cure. That there, there was no cure for, for, for leprosy, just as there is no cure for sin. That without the intervening hand of the Lord, apart from Christ, you are dead, and there is no other cure. Apart from Christ, you will spend an eternity in hell. Well, that's, well that, those are, that's a difficult thing to say. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what else to say. This, this is what this, the Scripture is clear, that there is no other way, that, that in fact when you stand before in judgment, you will not be standing holding the hands of anyone else. Your, your parents won't be there. Your mentors won't be there. Your favorite preacher will not be there with you, that you will be standing there, and the only hand that will save you is that which is nail-scarred. There is no cure. Do not be deceived. Do not think that there are many ways to heaven. There is but one, and his name is Jesus. And so there is no cure for leprosy. Leprosy was also progressive. If you notice uh, that your sin is not ever content where it's at. Leprosy, it takes about seven to eight years for it even to uh, begin to fester on the exterior of your body, that it is within you between seven and eight years as it develops. So the, the, to, cross, uh, to trace it is almost impossible. It's like asking you where, were you, where did you have this dinner on this particular Tuesday night eight years ago? Sin is just, it creeps in and it develops. And with leprosy, you could live up to 20 years in agony. And I mean true agony. The, the effects of leprosy is paralysis and crippling of the hands and the feet. It's it, your fingers and your toes begin to shorten and deform due to reabsorption. Chronic non-healing ulcers form at the bottom of your feet, and your nose and your face will become so disfigured, and you will be in constant pain. Sin disfigures us. Sin will, as, you, as you, you don't even realize how slowly it's just building in you and to the point where at some point in your life you might look and you may not even recognize who you are now. The things that you once said, I would never do that, you just slowly have begun in the progress. Sin is progressive. You will not stay in your sin. It will get worse apart from Christ. So not only is it, it, there is no cure, it's progressive, it is also contagious. Often sin is not content with just being alone, but rather it, it likes company. We like to justify our sin by surrounding ourselves with those that justify our sin. They say misery loves company. Uh, I think just wickedness does, doesn't it? Not only is it contagious, it's terminal. The enemy will have you, and he will give you and make you think that you can, uh, you can enjoy what he has to offer, but ultimately he will destroy you. And so there are very specific instructions that the priests are given as to how to deal with those that have leprosy. And the, the process is... It, it had to have been brutal when someone came forward with something that looked like 
something of leprosy and the process of them having to be in isolation for seven days and then being rechecked and then put in isolation again. And then if at, at one point, at some point, they are declared unclean, it says in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45, what they are to do. It says that the leprous person, leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair on his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. For he is unclean, and he shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. Can you imagine? Can you imagine feeling such physical ailment and such despair and then only to know that you had to do that alone, in isolation. You had to do that away from your, your wife and your children, that there were men and women who had to leave all that they loved and cared for. Another analogy of sin, that sin breaks up families. And so though Naaman Though Naaman was not an Israelite, or, he, or though he was not under the Levitical law, he was experiencing all the realities of what leprosy could do. And he knew that his life would come to an end at its hand. And so based on what we've already read and what we will read, we see that Naaman was a religious man, as most anyone was at that time. And in fact, I would say everyone is religious, right, and to some degree that he was familiar with offerings and to false gods. In fact, uh, he would have more than likely worshipped the storm god, Rimen, or as Zechariah would call, uh, Hadad. But he would worship this god, and, and there is no doubt that, and it's not recorded, but I, would, I couldn't imagine it not, that Naaman didn't try to sacrifice to his gods, right? I mean, if he were going to consider a god that he had never heard, why wouldn't he have first considered his own? And I believe he did, but he had to have come to the realization that there was no other, there was no power. There was no true power. Where is the true God? Naaman must have wondered. Look at verse 2 of our text. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to the mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. The all of Samaria, no one knew how to cure the mighty man Naaman's leprosy. No one wanted him to die. They were basing all of their victories on him. They didn't want him. He was sort of their protector. He was the one that they wanted. They were willing to pay an, an, an insane amount of money to have this man be made whole. There was no one in Syria. Well, Actually, there was. There was one little girl. This little girl knew of this God. Another reason why I think this text is great for today is because, children, an encouragement to you that do not fall for the lie that the Lord cannot use you now. So it's a weird thing that we uh, have gotten into, I think, in some sort of church, church, culture, church culture of thinking that the, the big thing that we're supposed to do is always next. It's always, you know, and so we, we always just imagine this big thing that's going to happen. And God works through little things. God works through even children. 
So children, don't fall for the lie that you need to grow up and become teenagers that just rebel and learn their truth and understand all the the philosophical things of this life. Don't fall for the lie that you've got to mess up before you can get things straight. Don't fall for the lie that you just need more knowledge or that you need a, a job or a car or a marriage or a certain position that God can use you. In fact, there was a king that reigned in Jerusalem. The scripture says in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 2, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside from the right to the left. So I said that, that this is the time of a divided kingdom. There were kings that would come up that would set the people straight. And that king in particular was King Josiah, who was eight years old. But even at eight years old, he knew what was right in the sight of the Lord. And so Naaman hears this news of this little girl, and he, he I, I really believe he just knew he had nothing else to lose. I mean, I can't imagine this strong and mighty man coming to the king and saying, someone told me this, and the king's saying, well, who? And he just being like, well, you know, you know that girl that we stole? <laughs> she told me that I, could, I should go back to the place we stole her from, and they would help me. But you see that that discussion doesn't even happen in the text because I think they're desperate to see Naaman healed. And so the king right away says, I'll send a letter. I'll tell the anything. We, we, we need to have you, Naaman. We need you. And so he sends Naaman. He sends a letter in Naaman with 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And if you uh, aren't familiar with the, the sacred standard, let me put it in the imperial standard system for you, and that equates to about 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, which would have been equivalent to the combined annual wages of about 600 common laborers. It was a great expense. And yet they felt that it was worth it. And so then we, we, this letter is sent. And, and by the way, uh, Syria, sometimes we think these places are far off. From border to border, we're talking like 10 miles. Okay, from, from Israel to Syria, Syria they are, they're, not, they're not far from one another. And they have a long history of, of you know, being at odds with one another. They have weird allies. At time. They, they just are countries that are back and forth, nations back and forth with one another. And at this moment, there is a little bit of peace that's taking place. And so this letter grieves the king in verse 7. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. He's saying, this is, this is about Naaman? Naaman's coming here, and they want to, he, he's, he's just not going to fall for it. He's like, this is just a ploy to try to invade us. What does he think I am, God, that I can heal him? Like, we don't want anyone with leprosy coming here. And, of course, Elisha, he hears this, and him being a man of God, it says in verse 8 that he heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, and he sent a message to him saying, why have you turned, torn your robes? It's almost like Elijah is thinking, Do you, are you missing something? Don't you see the incredible things that our God has been doing and all the other gods of this world are, are dead and lifeless and there's nothing to them? They cannot speak. They cannot contend for themselves. 
you can see the, the frustration that you, you, or you can imagine the frustration Elisha might be having with this king. Why have you torn your robes? He says, have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Naaman is angry over this response. The scripture says that he had, he had rage over it. He's thinking, what, what, don't you see what I brought? <laughs> like, we brought this entire thing. I mean, quite literally, like a parade came through. We, we, I, don't you see my entourage and, and the letter from the king that was personally written? Like, this wasn't duplicated. He wrote it with his hand. My name is on it, and your king read it. And he's thinking that the prophet's not even going to come out and see me. I mean, Naaman is waiting outside of his door, and Elisha sends a messenger to him. Ah, just send him out there to Naaman. So he's angry. He's like, dip in the Jordan. He's like, I could have just dipped in the, the waters that I'm familiar with that I actually think are better than the Jordan. I could have just stayed home. Pride. This is what Naaman is dealing with here for a moment. He's saying, I wanted to be healed. I just didn't want it that way. I wanted this to be a spectacle. I wanted this to be something a little bit bigger, a little bit more flashy. The church has fallen for that exact same lie. Haven't they? Of, of, well, we should just gather, and, and so long as it's a spectacle, people will be moved. I mean, can't you see? Can't you see what we've got going on? Can't you see all the things that we're doing? Don't you, don't you see that God is surely in this place, right? Or, or maybe it's the smoke machine. I don't know. Like, but, but surely, like, his presence is here, right? We've got all this stuff. I mean, he says just as much in verse 11, I thought that he would surely come out and stand and he would call on the name of his Lord and he would wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. How often are we waiting for something incredible with our own eyes only to miss that God does often through the mundane, the simple, and even the absurd I mean, for Naaman, he was just waiting for God to do something in his life, and he had no idea that God, the, the, that God had already spared his life, that God had already been in his life, that God had already helped him in battle, that the God of Israel that uh, was there with him, uh, that he would be revealed to in just a moment, he didn't realize was already impacting his life, that the God of Israel had placed that little girl there in Syria, that he wasn't going to be healed necessarily the way that he wanted to be, but he would be healed. But Naaman just wanted to stay home. I just caution you to avoid the desire of your heart for the spectacular. It's, it's a lot simpler than you think. This sermon I'm preaching right now has the power to save those in this room that don't know him. And I don't say that arrogantly. 
Because it's definitely not because of my words or just because of how I present it. I can sit up here with a, a dry mouth chugging water this entire time, stuttering all over the place. I could trip off of the stage and the lost could still come to know him through the proclamation of his word. And so I'm not worried if I stand up here and, and stumble around or look foolish of any means because I can't, the more I show of myself, the more you will see that truth. But there is power even in the foolishness of the preaching of his word. And that is how he chooses to save. And so if you've come here looking for something beyond Jesus, I tell you there is nothing beyond him. And that is all I have for you. And it is enough. And so Naaman's servants, they, they have to speak to him. I mean, he's, Naaman's ready to go home. I mean, they've just they've traveled this distance and they've, they've got all of this stuff. I mean, they've got... Ten things of different types of clothing, whatever that looks like. They've got all these things. And the servant said to him in verse 13, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleaned? They're saying, Naaman. If he had told you to stand on your head and count backward, you would have done it. If, if, he would have done, if he would have told you to do any of these things, you would have done it. Is this too simple for you? He said to go and wash and you would be cleaned. I guess after some convincing and certainly by the working of the Holy Spirit, Naaman didn't go home. He decided to, to go and wash that he might be clean and that's precisely what happened in verse 14 and so he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became like that of a young boy it's interesting because the language to explain what is happening here is uh, a little bit of a play on words in verse 2 of our text the young girl it is the exact same word that is used here in verse 14 and so this, this play on language is to explain what is happening, that there was this young girl who sent this great man to become a greater man, and he became like a little child. This is, this is the dispute the disciples are having with Jesus, right? In Matthew 18, I don't think I gave you the, the first two verses, but verse 1, I'm going to start there. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, Jesus called a child in front of them and said, and, and uh, calling a child, he put them in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, and Jesus used the same word, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest of the kingdom. And so here Naaman was going to, to make himself stronger, and yet God reveals to him his weakness, that he's not going to just get to pick the water or the process or how any of these things happen, but that he will be healed on God's terms and he will be made like a child. And so we see Naaman being delivered and something changed in him. Yes, he was healed of his disease, but something truly changed in him. Verse 15, and now, and then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all of the world except for in Israel. It had been revealed to him. 
This is the same, this is in chapter 2 when Elisha says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Naaman is now wondering, where is the Lord, the true God? And now he knows there is no other God. And so the God of Elisha now becomes also the God of Naaman. And so he declares this in verse 15 that all, and there is no God in all of the world except in Israel. And then he says, so please accept a gift from your servant. Please accept all that I have brought you. And the prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, Elisha refused. Elisha would not accept the, the Naaman's gifts because Elisha knew that this did not come from God, but it was, or I'm sorry, it did not come from him, but it was from God. What Elisha knew is that you can't buy this. Naaman in his mind thought, well, I've brought all of the riches. I've brought, I mean, 600 men annual wages could not afford all these things that I have brought you. And he says, just let me give it to you. And Elisha's like, you don't, you're not understanding the exchange. Some of you may not understand the exchange. Let me, let me explain to you. You have nothing to give him. And yet he saves you. He will save you. He can save you. Isaiah 55, a beautiful scripture that the prophet Isaiah gives to us. Verse 1, it says, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters and, and pay attention closely. It says this, and you have you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on uh, what is not bread and your labor on what it does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the riches of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful, loved promise to David. So we see the heart of God beautifully poured out here in Isaiah. And he continues in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Come on him who is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to, I'm sorry, let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. And so you read this and it says, hey, come and buy these things. Hey, all of you who have no money, come and buy these things. Well, what's going on? Well, it says it is because God has pardoned this, meaning you cannot purchase it. But let me also state that it had to be purchased. So it wasn't free. It's not like this is just given without a cost or that, that this was pardoned without a reason. But it had to be purchased. And so I told you that Leviticus chapter 13 is the laws of leprosy, and it is. 59 verses filled with every way that you deal with someone that's itching, the way that you deal with someone with boils, the way that you deal with someone that has got all sorts of infectious diseases. This stuff uh, would manifest in different ways, these skin diseases that were contagious and would kill a population if it were not uh, sent away. And so that's chapter 13, and then in chapter 14 is the law 
for cleansing lepers. Leviticus chapter 14, as I get ready to close here. And it says, and the priest shall come, I'm sorry, and the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds. This is verse 5. And an earthenware vessel over fresh water. And he shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yawn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean, and he shall let the living bird go into the open field. This is, I think, where Elisha comes up with this dipping seven times the Levitical law here. But you see, even with the, with, to cleanse the leper meant that you were to take two birds and one of them were to be sacrificed and its blood poured out and the other one was to be clothed in its blood. And then what does it say to do with the, the bird that's been clothed? Set it free. Let it go out into the open field. I want to say that if you have been united with Christ in his death, you have been united with him in his resurrection. Because he didn't stay in the grave. We know this is true. Romans says as much in chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christian, I say... I say this to you, Christians, that on the day that you stand before the Lord, you will stand before him like a bird that has been dipped in the perfect blood of Christ and has been set free. Naaman wanted to give him something like, surely I can, I can give you something, Naaman. I mean, Elisha. And you can even read later, and we, we're not going to unpack the rest of it, but one of Elisha's men ended up going after Naaman and, and saying, like, hey, like, we actually do want some of those things. And he comes back, and he lies about it, and he has, he has these things, and, and he's actually cursed with leprosy. It's like, oh, you wanted the stuff? Then get the stuff. You want to die for the stuff? You want to live for the stuff? Then die and live with the stuff, because it will rust and it will rot. So I ask you what, do you, what are you living for? Where is the Lord, the God of Elisha? Is he your God? Who do you serve? What are you investing all of it in? I mean, it, it, you, no one in this room has the riches that came before Elisha, and even that wasn't enough. So what are you going to do about that? Because if at some point you think, well, I can do enough good or I can, I can be enough good, listen to me, God is not in love with the future version of you. If you think, well, I've sinned too much, no, listen to me, the most leprous of men can be healed. We're talking about death becoming life. You can't get more dead. So I say, you have nothing to trade. And so if you are waiting to show your value to God because I'm a good person, you can't be good enough. 
Isaiah says that your, even your good works are as filthy as rags. Even your best that you can present is not good enough for a holy God. I don't know about you, but apart from Christ, that leaves me in utter despair. If someone stood before me and, and I was apart from Christ and they said, you can do nothing to enter into the kingdom of heaven, that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It would crush me. And I hope that this has crushed you. I hope that it has crushed you to the point where you say, if this is true, then I must need a Savior. If this is true and I am to be set free, I must be covered in something. And so we'll, we'll walk out of here and we'll leave this place and you will be firstly tempted. You will be tempted right away to cover yourself once again in the thing you covered yourself in yesterday. And the thing you covered yourself in the day before. Oh, well, I, I've got job security. I've got, a good, I've got a good little nest egg. I've got a good 401k. I've got a plan. I've got, I've got a good credit score. I've got all of these things. How shallow and how unworthy to think that any of those things would give you even, a, even the slightest acceptance before such a holy God. This dawned on Naaman. He's like, so I, I, none of this, I can't, none of this is good enough? Elijah's, we don't want your money, man. Our God owns everything. If we need money, he'll give us money. And if we're poor, he'll be with us during our poor. He'll be with us. Even this past week, I was uh, on the phone with my mom. Which is not a rare thing. Sorry, Kels. I was talking to her. Sometimes we just like to vent to one another. And we were just talking, and she, she reminded me of a conversation that I had with her when I was a boy. And I do remember it. I remember it. We were riding down the road, and we had just left a house that was a big house, and it had lots of many things in it. And by the way, I'm not saying that if you are rich, that God doesn't love you and you are not saved, right? I mean, I think that the kingdom is filled with all types of people. I just don't know what it's like to be that person, right? Um, and I remember riding, after leaving this, we were riding down the road, and, and she reminded me, and I, and I truly remember this conversation, I asked her, I said, Mom, was, were those people rich? Because I, I just, I mean, we had just seen so many things. And she just said, yeah, they're rich. And I was like, whoa, I was just in a rich person's house. And then I remember she said, we're rich. And I was like, what? Because I knew that wasn't true. <laughs> I, I'd seen them struggle. Greatly, actually. I'd seen us go through such difficulties. I'd seen us lose things that you don't want to lose. So that was perplexing. And then she just began to explain the riches of the Lord. Oh, yeah. We're rich. That's a good perspective. I hope that you hear what I'm saying and that you understand that there's nothing on this earth valuable enough to save you. But there is one who is. Naaman realized this and he even said to Elisha after he 
rested, I guess, in the idea of, okay, he's not going to accept our stuff. And he, and he just comes to the place where he says, well, can I have something of yours? Can I? And he says, can I just get two mule loads of this land? Can I just get some dirt and bring it back with me? And it's, it's actually a really beautiful thing because he was seeing the significance of where he was at and the holy ground that he had just experienced. And he said, I, I, I want more of that. So he was given that and he, he takes off and he said he's going to spread it out so he can worship there and he can uh, not worship the dirt but worship on the dirt. But I want to say this as I finish this sermon, that you don't need earth. You don't need to take your chair with you when you leave so that you would remember this word. But you do need Jesus. Because it is Jesus who is the only one that takes sinners and makes them clean. Again, I just want to reemphasize, if you are struggling and think that you have outsinned his grace, please. You haven't. No matter how dirty you are, Jesus is the one that can make you clean. And so we might ask, well, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He is Jesus. He is Jesus whom God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be a day that no matter if you claim it on this side of your death or not, there will be a day where out of your mouth will proclaim, He is Lord. And on that day, you might depart from him because you never knew him, or you might stay with him for all eternity because he alone saved you. But you will declare it. I know that is true. And so I ask you today, is he Lord? Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.